So ladies and gentlemen, this is our first Ugly Couch Show uh, live phone interview. We are very honored today to have comedy writer Mike Sachs with us. Hello, Mike. Hello, fellow geeks. <laughs> so glad to have you on the show. Uh, we talked about your book, and here's the kicker, a couple of uh, months ago. I had read this book and adored it, and so glad to have you here to talk a little more shop and get into a little more detail about the whole comedy writing experience. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, how was your cruise? I never asked you that. Uh, it went really well. I'm actually looking about maybe going back again sometime next year on the boat again, but uh, it's pretty fun to be able to do improv comedy on the ocean uh, for a living. It's pretty great, yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't know these were working cruises for you. Oh, yes, yes. This was, this was me actually doing a day job, basically, you know, yeah, working all the time there. Uh, well, not all the time. A couple of shows a week is Pretty easy, actually. But yeah, I was working through the second city there. That's what I was doing. Are these theme cruises, comedy cruises? They're not. Uh, we're just part of the entertainment rotation. So they would, yeah. you know, have uh, have one or two of our shows every week, yeah, along with all kinds of jugglers and ventriloquists and stand-up comedians. And no, no uh, Norwalk virus, right? There's no problems with outbreaks? Nothing too major, but you can't really be on a boat for four months without some degree of that <laughs> that's just <laughs> okay. that, seriously that just goes with the territory so yeah, yeah. lots of antibacterial of soap <laughs> that's right well i agree with you on that i carry that on land so yeah yeah <laughs> yeah thanks for thanks for talking about the book i appreciate it i like your guys show and it was exciting to see you talking about it well cool uh so i'll go ahead and uh, start asking some questions and please be honest with me here was this just an excuse for you to talk to all these great writers writing this book? Is that really why you wrote this book? Yes, it was. That's, uh, I'm not going to lie, that was really the reason. I mean, these people are, are the writers I grew up loving. And, you know, to talk to a David Sedaris or a George Meyer from The Simpsons or even Harold Ramis, any of these people, you know, was, was always something I wanted to do. I had the idea years ago, but it was rejected from a lot of publishers. And it was only because I had a friend at F&W Press, and they also, uh, also known as Writer's Digest, that he pushed the project through and it got made. But, yeah, the original intention was just to speak to these guys and pick their brains uh, and advice about humor writing in their career and so forth. Excellent. Well, and, and having read the book, I found, like, a lot of the stories, it seemed like when a lot of these guys were getting started, they just found a way to inject themselves into that world that they were so desperate to be a part of, you know, just straight up handing their writing submissions to the individual that they want to read them. I mean, like, the audacity of it all, but I, I'm wondering, like, in today's world, I think you've done the closest approximation to that in just deciding to, to make a project about that as an excuse to talk to these guys, but how, how else could a, a young writer insert themselves into that universe? Well, I don't think it's a bad idea, really, to go straight to the person that you, that you really admire and just, at the very least, ask them if you can ask them some questions. I wouldn't necessarily hand them a packet of material like Dick Cavett did to Jack Parr. Yeah. In fact, I don't think a lot would even accept it now just for legal reasons. Exactly. But I do think it's good, you know, just to go straight to the source. You know, someone like Dave Sedaris, he's incredibly nice to his fans. I don't know of another writer who's better to his fans. And if you write to him, he'll probably write you back. But I think it's, it's a, good, um, a good in to just uh, interview these people, to talk to them for a while and to, uh, you know, just ask them how they did it and what were their tricks. And most people are willing to talk about themselves as opposed to necessarily reading, uh, you know, resumes or 
you were writing samples, but I think that's a good first in is just to introduce yourself and ask if you can ask them a few questions. Very cool. And to do it with the premise of I'm writing a book is even better, easier probably. Was there anyone during that process that you really wanted to interview but you didn't get a chance to? Yeah, there was a few. I mean, I wanted to interview Woody Allen, Steve Martin, Tina Fey. Actually, a lot of women I wanted to interview. Not many were interested. I don't... I think it came down to a few things. One is that there's so few women in top women humor writers now, and then that's going to change, obviously. But there's so few of them out there that are all, they're always being asked to be interviewed, so they may not be as um, accepting uh, for it. And also, I think it's an ego thing. I think men have a bigger ego than women. But I, I had a uh, difficult time getting some a lot of women that I asked, including Tina Fey. But I, I got most of them. Uh, I interviewed about. 40 people, and 20 made, 21 made the final cut of the book. And actually, there's more additional interviews on the Kindle version, the electronic version. Yeah, I noticed it. You only had the, the what was it, two women in the in the book by the time it was all said and done? Yeah, it's pathetic. I mean, I, I asked at least 15 to 20, and there's actually one additional woman, Roz Chast, who's in the electronic version, and she was cut by the publisher because for money reasons, uh, from the hard copy, you know, it's one of uh, three women, yeah. Well, it really was a boys' club for a long time, yeah? Comedy writing in general? Yeah, and um, I, I think it still is, although that's thankfully changing. I mean, you see a lot of top women writers, such as Alison Silverman, who used to write for the Colbert Report. Yeah. A lot of female writers are coming up, which is great. Yeah, but for a lo many years, it was a boys' club, and even more specifically, it was sort of a Harvard Lampoon for a long time. You know, that was the gateway. You graduated Harvard Lampoon, and you went into business. It was a networking thing. But uh, that's changing, too. Yeah. That's, that's actually how I got into improvisation, was working with a guy who had uh, been with the Harvard Lampoon, uh, was one of my resident assistants at uh, my little nerd camp that I went to back as a kid in, uh, in high school. And what he, camp was this? Uh, it, was a, it was called the Governor's Scholars Program. It was a thing in Kentucky where you went and played college for five weeks with a bunch of other smart kids. Yeah, this guy had uh, worked with the Harvard Lampoon, and he, he taught us some early improv games. That's what really got me going with uh, improvisation back when I was 17. Well, I mean, it, it, did you think you, did you needed, I'm sorry, did you need his networking, his Harvard networking to get in? Did that help you? Because I find that that's the case often. If you know someone who... Um, knows others uh it's just a networking thing you know one person talks to another person who gives you a good word otherwise you're sort of out of the loop yeah no that didn't that never came into play because i never really followed up on it back then to any to any degree uh i was just inspired by him it wasn't until much later in my 20s that I, when i started really getting into work with uh, second city that i met a few people there in las vegas that uh, got my back and i was eventually put into the the rotation with them but yeah, if, if I hadn't gotten to know those, those guys out here, and I think I was really lucky because they were so cut off from the Chicago scene that I was actually able to network with them a bit, that I was able to yeah. get myself into that, into that system. But yeah, it is very much still, it's a who-you-know kind of game, writing or performing, yeah. It really is, but I think you did the right thing. I mean, you go to where you have to go, and you went to Chicago. You know, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York. It, it's really important to come up with, with various people even when you're just starting out, because you're going to run into them years later, if you come up with them, it's sort of a brotherhood type thing. Absolutely. Whereas if you come into it later, it's more difficult. 
So, were there any traits among all the writers that you found they had in common? Was there anything that kind of unified them, or was, is it... Well, I think there was a perseverance, you know, even if some were outsiders, like David, um, not David, um, Bob Odenkirk, I was thinking of David Cross, Bob Odenkirk grew up, uh, he said his parents never saw movies, you know, showbiz was a million miles away, it might as well have been on the moon, but he wanted it, and he wanted it badly enough that he sought it out, he, he went to Chicago, and he worked with, uh, you know, people that later became famous, Saturday Night Live, Robert Smigel, and some others, and just went for it. Yeah, I think that's what you have to do. You just have to do it. There's a lot of people out there who want to do it, and plenty of people out there who have the talent, but it does take a commitment, you know, either by moving physically to another city or just working as hard as you can on the stuff and make yourself as good a writer performer as you can be. Absolutely, yeah. See, that's I never I never moved. I I, I came up through Vegas, not Chicago, and it was one of the I was one of the kind of abnormalities uh, of just persevering here and finally, after four years of understudy, getting a spot with the main stage. So Yeah, it's just more difficult that way. Yeah. I mean, it can be done, certainly. It's just uh, yep. you, know, you want to make it easier for yourself. Exactly, exactly. Would, would you have done it differently if you could go back and do it again? No, I don't think so. I, I enjoyed the ride that I had, uh, and I was able to hold down uh, another job with the exper- Star Trek The Experience here, too, so that was kind of cool to be able to do both things at once. Because I, I wouldn't want to trade that experience away. So, no. And Vegas, I still really enjoy this town, even though it's going through some really hard times right now. I still think there's a great opportunity for comedy here, also. Well, that's the thing too. I mean, that's that's really changing. It's a great thing with the internet and cable and everything else that you don't have to be in New York or Los Angeles necessarily to um, create. You can be elsewhere, as long as there's, there's opportunities and a community that you can be a part of. That's it, yeah. And, and, and also just trying to develop a community. We, we had something of a fledgling community while Second City had a real presence here, and so we're trying to continue that a little bit now that everything's kind of gone on. But yeah, it's kind well, of fun. Has to... it diminished, the Second City out there? Second City closed from the Flamingo in, in 08. They, 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 they stopped their show, so they don't have a presence here anymore, but we still had a student body that had been going through training classes and everything, and we had a regular Monday night showcase. And we still have that showcase going on, just under new management, kind of, and we still offer classes and things like that, trying to keep people interested. And we still have about 150 people within the class structure, and uh, we have about you know, 90 people a week showing up for our Monday shows. So it's a very small thing, but it's, you know, it's a grassroots kind of effort. Do you know Scott Dickensheets? He's, he's the editor of the Las Vegas Weekly. I don't know him. Yeah, he's a good guy to know. He, we can talk about this off the air, but he's a good guy to know. He's yeah. uh, into comedy and some other things. Yeah, but I think it's important, even if, even if an institution goes out like that, it's just to keep doing your thing, because you have the access like you have with your show here. You, know, you, you can reach anyone you want with uh, the Internet or whatever, which in years past you never could do. A lot of the people that I interviewed did not come up with the internet. They, a lot of them expressed, um, not a regret, but they wish they had come up with the internet because they would have done what they were doing earlier. You know, they would have they would have worked as writers and performers from their homes in high school and college rather than having to wait until after college and perform with a professional group. Exactly, and and I think it gives you that chance to fail so many times before you have you know you get into the truly professional realm and there's so much to be learned from that just the experience of putting stuff up seeing what works absolutely and that's an important thing is to have that time to uh, experiment 
and be willing to make mistakes, that's the only way you're going to find your voice is, is by discovering what you can do and what, or what you shouldn't do. Yeah. But you can, if you can do it in the privacy of your own, own home, you know, even better. Absolutely. So uh, you yourself are pretty prolific. I've been reading a lot of your stuff lately. It's hilarious, wonderful stuff. We're gonna put. I'm gonna get Barry to put a link up on the site to your site. Uh, it, oh, may, it may take me a couple weeks to to get him to do the code, but it's gonna happen. Uh, but hilarious stuff. I was just wondering if you have any secrets that get that comedy muscle jump started for you. Is there anything? Uh, any any trick to the process? I mean, I I know I'm I'm taking a writing course right now with a friend. And we're just trying to get back into the habit of writing. What is it that, that you do to get your to keep yourself on track? Well, I think it's important just to keep writing, you know, just consistently. Where a lot of people want to be writers, but they don't write. You know, or they're forced, forced themselves to go to graduate school where they're forced to uh, write <laughs> by a professor or such. But, you know, if you want to be a writer, that's what you have to do is just sit down every day and write. And as far as it just creativity, just do what makes you happy. Not necessarily what you think is going to get you published, but um, you know, I just write the type of humor that I like the most, and um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily pay all the time. But it's what I enjoy reading and what I enjoy writing. Because you know, in the end, you're not going to become rich from this anyway. You might as well do what you want. Exactly. Exactly. So, have you? You, you've cultivated a pretty unique voice from the pieces that I've read thus far, and it's a lot of a lot of short, quick hit stuff, uh, lots of lists, fun stuff like that, almost like a, almost like a top ten list. What it kind of reminded me of, uh, very Letterman inspired almost. And I noticed also you have uh, quite the affinity for Chris Elliott, which I share with you. Uh, I think he's a genius. I, I really do. I, I love that guy. I mean, I I don't understand why Get a Life isn't hasn't been fully released on DVD yet. Yeah, but I like even more his stuff that he used to do on Letterman. Which oh, yes. Find anywhere. The Boy Under the Stairs? Yeah, all that. I mean, it's very, very strange stuff, which I always found it, uh, almost more frightening than it was funny. Yes. It's very bizarre. I remember him uh, testing lacquer one time, and he was wiping it on bread and, and eating it, and just, you know, that was his lacquer test. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, in fact, he also did a similar test where he ate dog food. Yeah. Yeah, but just, he was very strange, and you didn't see anything like that then, and you really don't see anything like it now. These characters that would come out, and there was no wink to the audience, and he, he didn't really care if he got a laugh or not most of the time. I mean, some of my favorite lines, he got zero laughs. <laughs> but he, he just kept barreling ahead. He couldn't have cared less. Yeah. It still remains fresh. I mean, if he, some of these performances, like the Marlon Brando imitation and others, are on YouTube, which you can find. And um, actually, there are bootlegs out there of hours and hours of his stuff on Letterman, which is more difficult to find, but it's very much worth it if you can uh, locate it. I think I might have to track that down for a future uh, Ugly Couch Show episode, absolutely. God, if you, you may be able to get him on, too. He's a really nice guy, supposedly. Really? Yeah. Well, I might have to try then, because he's definitely one of my heroes from back in the day. I, 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 just, I do. I totally sync up with his, his sensibility. It just really cracks me up. Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of humor writers that I interviewed are huge fans of his. And I think part of it just has to do with the fact that he did whatever he wanted and didn't really try to kiss the audience's ass, just do what he thought was funny, and just kept at it. You know, I think uh, comedy writers respected that. And, you know, a lot of, I think he was ahead of his time, really, in a lot of ways, the comedy of the uncomfortable was doing that years before he was even really recognized, so maybe even too early. 
a lot of the stuff didn't stick. Agreed. But, uh, I thought he was very, uh, very influential, really, on, on this generation's comedy writers. Well, certainly, I see, I see a lot of that kind of uh, mindset with, uh, like, say, Tim and Eric, Awesome Show, where they kind of just push that uncomfortableness to a point of, you know, insanity. You know, it's, it's yeah, all think, about that, you know. Right, and maybe too much about that. Agreed, yes. That's why it, it, takes, it takes it to a point and then goes, goes way far. Um, but yeah, like I can, I mean, but they're almost aping what he was doing 15, 20 years ago. Right, and almost to a perversion, not a perversion, but you know, it's to, to a degree that may not be, it's for me, I mean, it works, but it may just be too uh, perverse. You well, know, there, there's, maybe, there's no subtlety in it. There's no subtlety, and the line of mocking those who they are, are imitating may be a little too fine, almost like a Howard Stern show situation. Agreed, agreed. Whereas with Letterman, I mean, with Chris Elliott, it was always just about how he was the idiot rather than others being idiotic. Yes, yes, I'm with you on that. Um, so I noticed also with a, a couple of the interviews, the, the correlation between music and comedy came up. And I just wondered if you had any other little thoughts on that about, you know, I mean, and we use a lot of musical terms when we're in our writing. We talk about beats and, you know, the, the, the rhythm of the scene and its pacing. And, and uh, you know, I even just myself think about people understanding the music of comedy. Uh, have you found that that is true for you? Uh, are you a big music fan? Yeah, I'm a huge music fan. And I, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of, very similar sensibilities between music and comedy. But what's interesting, too, is a lot of the people I interviewed, if not all of them, were big fans of, of music and um, also magic, which I thought was... Uh, I mean, I read about that as a kid, Johnny Carson, Steve Martin, Woody Allen, but I didn't realize the younger generation was into magic. But a lot were into magic, and a lot were into uh, either playing or listening to music. And quite a few compared writing jokes to writing a melody, where you have to hit a certain, you know, when you when you hit the melody when you're writing a song, you know it, and when you when you hit the right joke, you know it then too. It just feels right. Like like you say to the beats, the beats were you is a term used often, and the rhythm and the and you know a lot of this just really um, uh, a lot of these people grew up listening to music, mostly rock music. I think a lot of them are frustrated musicians, and they sort yeah. of tunnel their uh, their energies into, because they really don't have much of a musical, uh, you know, they can't really make it as a musician, they sort of funnel that into uh, humor writing. But all of them really were, were into, are into listening to music. They're all huge fans, and they all see a, uh, a common aspect between writing humor and writing, you know, or listening to uh, music. Yeah, and I guess uh, yeah, thinking about it too now, I think about it. I'm I'm a big comic fan. I, you read a lot of comic books at all, or I read humor comic books growing up. Okay, well, and, and, and uh, Mad and Crack. That's is that what led you to working for Mad and Crack and all that? Just was that, yeah, that was I mean, a dream come true? You know, when I graduated college, the internet wasn't even out. I had there's only a few places you could you could write humor. One was Mad, the other was Cracked, and then there was National Lampoon in the later years that they, they uh, came out with National Lampoon again in the 90s and yeah. Playboy and that was basically it until McSweeney's came along which was one of the first online besides The Onion yes. uh, places to get published yeah but I grew up reading Mad and Cracked and actually Mad and Cracked when I wrote for Mad I had to write under a pseudonym because they 
found out I was running for cracked. Oh. And they were so pissed off, they uh, made me write under a fake name and they gave me less money. <laughs> and they didn't want to invite me to the mad trips, which was just fine with me, but oh, it was very bizarre. They were furious with cracked years later because Matt had stolen, I'm sorry, cracked had stolen Don Martin away from Mad. Yeah. And they never got over that. Wow. And they considered a Sylvester P. Smith a just a, a bad knockoff of uh, Alfred E. Newman. Yes, pretty, and and you know, to be fair, it's pretty close. I mean, not, <laughs> not. Well, yeah, it was pretty close. Yeah, goofball and white painter painting not. overalls. Yeah, didn't come close to Sylvester Smith. But I mean, they. Um, I mean, years later, and to this day, they're pissed off at Crack, even though Crack doesn't even exist anymore. They're just furious. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cracked. I, I saw Crack came back for like a minute with Michael Ian Black at the helm. I think I picked yeah, up Neil, one issue of that. Right, Neil Pollock was involved too. A few people were involved, uh, some modern humor writers, but it only lasted two or three issues, but they still are online. Okay. I'm going to have to but, go uh, check them out some more too. Yeah, as far as uh, having a printed copy that that just lasted a few issues. I mean, that whole thing, I think, I'm, I'm surprised Matt is even still around anymore, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, that they're hanging on uh, by a thread. Um, so what I was what I was thinking, too, is I, I, I read a lot of comic book writers actually write with music in the background while they're doing their writing. Do you use music like that, or do you need complete silence, focus? No, I've always written with music, and uh, I can't write with talk. Talk radio, I can't write. Sure. Or even commercials, but if it's just music, I can. It just I can't write without it, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. What's your What's your uh, drug of choice as far as the music goes, then? Anything, really. I mean, I just for the book, for the for the written, for the interview book, I listened a lot to KEXP out of Seattle, which is a great station. That's also online. It's an alternative station. Also, John Fahey, he's a guitarist from... Do you know John Fahey? I don't. He's a guitarist from uh, Maryland, where I grew up, and he is uh, dead now, but he was big. Not, he was actually never big, but he came up in the 60s and 70s uh, with his own distinctive style, sort of a bluesy folk style. But he's... Uh, I would seek him out. He's great. He's, he's not that well-known, but you can hear him occasionally in movies, on radio stations and such. Cool, I'll have to check that out. And that you say that, that radio station is online as well? KEXP, yeah, so uh, you can find them online. Great station. Okay, definitely going to look that one up. Well, to kind of get us wrapping up here, what are some of your own personal favorite examples of comedy writing? Or, are there any shows or movies or sketches that really stand out in your memory? I know we talked about Chris Elliott. Is there anything else that really stands out that just right off the top of the head, like, oh, that's the gold standard kind of thing? Well, I mean, not... I don't know. I like documentaries a lot, even maybe more so than humor writing. You guys were talking about Overnight recently. Uh, did you see that documentary? I did not see that one. That is a great movie, and I find that hilarious. I think it's just fantastic. And, you know, the realism to me is is more effective than anything that's... Um, I shouldn't say anything. Most things that are created. But, you know, as far as, as fictional humor... I, Mr. Show, I thought was fantastic. Yes. And, you know, that's going back a bit now. That came on, what, over 10 years ago? It's pretty crazy, but yeah. But I think, um, you know, all the current shows, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, you know, I think that's uh, good stuff. And, you know, I, I did like um, 
Tim and Eric for a while. I think I got kind of bored with them. But agreed. Yeah, just kind of same same thing, beaten to the ground. What do you like these days? Uh, right now, what's really uh, Metalocalypse is probably at the top of my list. Yes, Tommy Blocka, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I adore that show. I just got to see Brandon Small and his band perform live as Death Clock a couple of weeks ago when I was in town briefly between cruise time in November. And yeah, so he's he's definitely one of my favorites. And and a, a lot of what Brandon Small's done, uh, home movies. Oh, that's great. In fact, a friend of mine is running on the new show that he's putting together. They're working on a new one? Yeah, they're working on a new one. Oh. Uh, an animated show out in L.A., Scott Jacobson, my friend, is writing for that now. Have you seen uh, La La Land? I haven't seen La La Land. Great show. The guy who does that, whose name is escaping me, but he is a really talented guy. And it's sort of like a Ollie G thing, but he does it much more straight-faced. The character, he has three characters, and each of them is trying to make it out in L.A. Oh, I saw a little preview for that. A, A British guy, yes? Mark Wooten, right. Okay. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, I'd recommend that highly. You know, here's a movie I tried to watch recently that a lot of my comedy friends, comedy fan friends love is uh, With Nail and I, but I just could not get into it. I think it's my third time, third attempt to try to get into it. (laughs) Yes, I have yet to try and endure it. I hear that all the time. I hear hear people rave about it, and then I hear people saying, I couldn't couldn't take it. Yeah, it's really unwatchable for me. It's the type of comedy I just cannot get into. Yeah. Another movie that I, I have on my mind, I just wrote an article about it for Vice in Oral History, is uh, Over the Edge. Have you seen this movie? Over the Edge, no. 1979, Matt Damon's first role about a group of kids in a prefabricated development out west who um, overtake the town, who, who get bored, lock their parents in a high school and set fire to it. Oh, wow. It's a true story, actually. It's, it's fantastic. Neat. Yeah, available on DVD. Great soundtrack. Uh, Cheap Trick, Ramones, Hendrix. It's really good. Oh, well, you you got Jeff's attention with that soundtrack. That's that's 80s Jeff's music taste to a T right there. Well, it's a very influential soundtrack. I mean, after Mean Streets by Scorsese, it's one of the first movies to really use rock to propel along the uh, plot. It's just used really well. It's, a great, it's impossible to find the soundtrack itself, but... Yeah, you can hear the songs, obviously, as you watch the movie. Sure. Over the Edge. Well, definitely going to look that one up, too. Very, very cool. All right. Well, is there any other thing uh, as far as what to watch, read, and play that you might have on the tip of your mind? Well, I'm really big now into North Korea. I just read a great book about Kim Jong-il. Yes. And the people of North Korea. What's fascinating is, you know, Millions upon millions of North Koreans are suffering, are literally eating grass and barely getting by. But Kim Jong-il is, is such a nightmare, such a fanatic, that he has one person whose job it is only to inspect each grain of rice to make sure it's perfect enough for him to eat. Wow. It was a great book. It just came out. And I'm forgetting the name of it. I'll find it in a second. But uh, it was it's really interesting. I'll think of it in a second. Just read the complete stories of J.G. Ballard, which is great. Are you into him? I have not read his stuff. Actually, here's something. A movie, a documentary called Strong Man. 
it's really, I don't even think it's been out yet, but you can go to the website. It's about a 50-something-year-old man in New Jersey who wants to make it on the strongman circuit, you know, breaking things and bending <laughs> steel and such. Yeah. But a uh, fantastic movie. I checked that out. Strongman. All right. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I think that's about all I have. I want to thank you so much for your time. And Thanks, man. Yeah, this has been really, really cool, and love to do it again sometime down the road, hopefully. Definitely. I really appreciate you calling. And uh, The book was called Nothing to Envy. And that's a North Korean book by Barbara Devick. Okay, Nothing to Envy. Yeah, good stuff. But, well, I appreciate you getting in touch, and I appreciate you talking about the book. It was very nice of you to do that, and I like the show a lot, and uh, I'll continue to watch it. Thanks. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Sachs, our first on live chat interview. So cool. Thanks for listening, and we will talk again soon.